When did you last spend an extended period of time in a very tiny space with someone completely different from you? For some of you, that might have been your college dorm room experience. And if it looked anything like this, you probably wanted to escape a lot, even though you were probably stuck with them for an extended period of time. Something very similar to this happens in Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. You have Huck, who's a 13-year-old white American boy with an abusive, alcoholic father and a strict Christian guardian who decides to escape from both of them, but then runs into Jim, who's a middle-aged African slave, actually owned by Huck's guardian, who's just found out that he's going to be sold down the river by her. Now, although they know of each other, they do not know each other. But both of these very different characters find themselves on the same 12-foot by 16-foot raft on the shores of the Mississippi. Now, as a former English teacher, I was always fascinated by this little detail of the raft, which is buried somewhere on page 50 or so. This raft is tiny for two people, and it doesn't have any bathrooms. But more seriously, both of these people are outlaws. One of them is considered 100% human, the other only 60%, which means that Huck ostensibly has all the power on this raft, and Jim has absolutely no reason to trust this kid. And on top of that, Huck uses the N-word to describe Jim over 200 times in the novel, which is one reason why it's challenged and banned at schools throughout history. However, even though Jim is making a very dangerous and risky choice to confess his secret to this white child and stay on the raft with him, and even though Huck is worried the entire time that he is breaking the law for colluding with Jim, both of these characters make a conscious choice to stay on that 12 by 16 raft together. They inhabit it with a common goal, escape north, despite the obvious risks and their obvious differences. Now, on their journey north, this really should be called the adventures of Huckleberry Finn and Jim, Huck is forced to confront his learned racism and undergoes a process of unlearning that I think would not be possible without the close proximity and intimacy of this raft, which becomes not just a vehicle to freedom, a physical one, but a mental vehicle of change. And over the years, I've narrowed down the process of Huck's unlearning to 10 important elements. The first one is that they have to share the first meal together. It's actually Huck who makes the meal of catfish and bacon and coffee for Jim when they first meet. They confide in each other, which means that they have to tell each other the secrets of their escape and their backstories and have faith, fides, and confidence in each other. And they have to figure out how they're going to create this shared space together on this tiny, tiny raft. Along the way, they gather all the things that they need in order to survive. They steal a lot of disguises. Here's Huck as Marianne. They protect each other from snake bites, from shifty characters, from uh, slave traders. 
but they also find time to play, to enjoy each other's company. They hunt, they fish, they swim, and Huck even reads to Jim. And along the way, they're constantly co-creating who they're going to be, where they're going to go, and what they're going to do. The last process, the last step of this process, though, is reckoning. If Huck had not reckoned, which is a kind of concluding, on this raft, the differences between them would have, would have just stayed differences. Huck reckons as the tenth essential element in his unlearning. And it's interesting that dead reckoning is a navigational term that Mark Twain would have been very familiar with. And what it means is to determine one's current position by considering one's previous position and then using data like speed and time and current to figure out where one is. And for a 13-year-old boy, and I've known a lot of 13-year-olds in my teaching career, Huck does an awful lot of reckoning about his current position in society and his current position with Jim. I think that there are three very important reckoning scenes which are worth noting. In the middle of the book, Huck decides that he has to humble himself to Jim. He decides to apologize to him for the very first time for hurting his feelings. Huck even, Jim even calls him trash at one point. And he, just, he reckons that he should, and he does and he doesn't feel sorry for doing so. And later on, even after everything that they go through, Huck tests himself towards the end, and he tries praying to God for forgiveness, for helping out Jim. But the words, when it come, he says, and he reckons, it's because you can't pray a lie. And then even after that, he tries writing a letter to his guardian and Jim's owner saying where they are. But then he tears it up, and reckons, if helping Jim is going to get me sent to hell, then all right then, I'll go to hell. Remember that the raft is both a physical vehicle to freedom, but also a, a mental vehicle to change. If it were not for this raft, they would remain completely different. And yet, Huck is able to, by the end, come to relate to Jim, his friend, and vice versa, and he all, even goes so far as to say, essentially, I am Jim. Their friendship and Huck's unlearning process should challenge all of us to unlearn our own prejudices, even if it takes 300 pages and a lot of messy reckoning. Now, oh. is the 12 by 16 rafts transformative power applicable to other parts of our life? Are there other things that we need to unlearn? I think so. I first borrowed the raft concept in my English classes, not just the American lit ones, but all of them, as a vehicle to create class culture, but also urge my students to unlearn, surprisingly, school. I wanted them to unlearn the idea that I was the only teacher and leader in the classroom, and that they were all my followers to unlearn the idea that learning was just a solo act and not collaborative, that it was all about grades and competition, and that learning was failure-free, 
and that it should be orderly and unmessy. So it would throw every new batch of students for a loop when on the first day of class they would come in and a mysterious 12 by 16 space was taped to the floor. And instead of launching into a boring syllabus of here are the books we're going to read, here's how, what everything's going to be worth, and here are my expectations for them, instead I would tell them the story I just told you of the raft and invite them to raft with me for the remainder of our time together. If we were lucky, on a nice day, we would go outside and enjoy this metaphorical meal, first meal, with pizza. So we'd have a real meal outside. And I would tell them about the raft there. But then I had to ask them to help me create a shared mental space that would take us through the rest of the year. And I would tell them that raft stood for respectful, accountable, forward-thinking, and moving, and thoughtful. And I would ask them, what are these things going to look like for you and for me and for your classmates? I would take all of their ideas, synthesize them, put them on a big scroll, read it dramatically, invite them to pledge their allegiance to it if they wanted to, then tacked it to the wall so that we could refer to it throughout the year. But of course, the idea behind the raft was for them to internalize it. So the first time I heard a student say to his or her classmates, hey, get back on the raft, or I would ask them, are we rafting well? And they'd say, no. I knew that they were beginning to internalize it and make it their own. Our rafting for us meant a lot of talking and reflecting. It included a lot of arguing and reconciling arguing more in the form of disagreeing with each other and making mistakes together. I remember a particular Friday, and I had just finished introducing a new rhetoric assignment to my freshmen for the weekend, and hands shot up. They said, this will not do. And I said, what will do? And they said, please leave the room. After a nice coffee break of about 20 minutes, they invited me back, and a girl was standing at the whiteboard with lists and charts and the a uh, rhetorical triangle of ethos, logos, and pathos that I had just taught them, and she proceeded to give me their new proposal, which they ended up doing. On other occasions, when we were rafting together and some of the kids were going overboard, or I was going overboard, or we were all going over a waterfall together, and part of it was on me, I would humble myself and apologize to them, and we'd figure out where to go. But most important on this raft, this classroom raft, was the idea that the students should be responsible for determining the direction of it. So often we would reckon, what was going well? What wasn't going well? And how could we fix the latter? Sometimes whole parts of my curriculum were tweaked or revised or scrapped altogether and replaced with something new that we had created together because we thought it would be more effective, or so we hoped. Many kids took their oars and paddled wildly because we've never done anything like this before. Other kids didn't quite know how to hold the oar and because they had never done anything like this before, been treated this way. While all this sounds messy and unconventional, it was. But it was all in the name of the raft culture that we were trying to create, a culture of learning but also unlearning. I've been able to, throughout the years, 
apply this RAF concept to other areas of my career and life. At my old school, I helped co-create a larger service learning raft called CLASS, for instance, which stood for character, leadership, accountability, service, and sustainability. And this raft brought together fourth through 12th graders, kids from all of those grades, all different kinds of kids, with a common goal of recognizing injustices in their world, learning about affected communities, serving them with action and awareness building. And we were trying to help them unlearn things that like service and accountability were the same thing, that service without learning about issues and creating relationships with people was not quite service, that leadership without character and accountability was okay. But most of all, the idea that their voices didn't count and that they could not change the world. And so they too signed a RAF pledge, usually on an oar, and committed themselves to working for an entire year, creating shared spaces outside of the classrooms with that common goal to learn how to serve others. I also, at 6.26 a.m., every Wednesday and Friday for the last three years, have been part of an even larger raft community called November Project in Milwaukee. And what we are is a free, fun, fitness family of up to 150 people sometimes that uses the city as our raft, as our gym. We are all ages, all shapes, all sizes, all speeds, all fitness levels, and we are weatherproof. We do this throughout the year. And we try to unlearn things like fitness needs to cost a lot of money. This is free. Fitness can't be fun and wacky. That 626 is too early. We actually have a 529 a.m. group now. Okay. And most of all, the fact that you have to be X, Y, or Z in order to be an athlete. This is us running up the hill in the summer and the winter. Huck and Jim, 20 to 30 different kids in a classroom, fourth and 12th graders, 150 different kinds of athletes on learning racism, school, service, and fitness. Finally, two days ago was the one-year anniversary of the launch of my biggest raft yet. Biggest because it was about unlearning Milwaukee. It was something that the majority of you probably have in your possession right now, a camera of some sort. September of last year, in response to the August 13th police officer shooting of a man in the Sherman Park neighborhood and the unrest that followed, I created SIPMKE. But it wasn't just because of that. It was because of the divisive, dichotomous, vitriolic language I heard on social media describing that Sherman Park raft. City, inner city. Suburban, urban. Good neighborhood, bad neighborhood. White people, black people, that neighborhood, those people, savages, barbarians, and worse. And was not surprised that we had not unlearned these things, even though it was 2016. But I knew that we had to. And a lot of well-meaning people kept asking, what do we do? What can we do? And I couldn't help but think about Huck and Jim and the 12 by 16 raft. 
Before we could answer, what can we do? We needed to answer, what do we need to unlearn? And these are some of the images that we saw for days and weeks and months of that event. This became the narrative, not just of that night, but of the Sherman Park neighborhood, and unfortunately for some, all of black Milwaukee. And so when we created Zip MKE, we wanted the mission to be to create neighborhood pride. Show us what you got. To create community connections. Let's start to see each other. To expand social perspectives by diminishing our preconceived assumptions about each other. And question even further that narrative that Milwaukee is only just segregated, is only disunited. It's been a rewarding year, but also one which has been very difficult and messy. We still have to figure out how are we going to reach all 28 zip codes? Are we really making a difference with pictures? And yet, these pictures here are also taken in Sherman Park. I invite you, in closing, to unlearn those first four pictures I showed you of violence, destruction, anger, and frustration, and ask yourself, when you're on the raft and things get messy, what do you do? Who do you rely on? What do you need to unlearn? What do you want to unlearn? And how can Huck and Jim and the raft help you do it? Thank you. <laughs>